Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. We come now to the end of the prophecy of Malachi. The last three verses are a concluding paragraph that not only summarize the basic idea of the book, but also form a fitting end to the Protestant canon. And as much as this last paragraph points backwards to the law and also forwards to the future. Malachi started with the declaration of God's love for Israel, particularly that God has not treated them like Edom, who was completely destroyed. Instead, God had chosen her ancestors, and that privileged status came with the responsibilities of the covenant. Throughout Malachi, we have seen that Yahweh is a faithful God who keeps his covenant promises. Texts like 3.6, I, Yahweh, have not changed, come to mind. But throughout the prophecy, we have also seen Israel fail again and again in her requirements of covenant fidelity, whether in terms of the Levitical covenants vis-a-vis the priests in the first unit, whether in terms of the marital covenant by putting away their wives in the second unit, or in terms of the Deuteronomic covenant in bringing a curse upon the land because they haven't been tithing. This concluding paragraph summarizes the basic call of Malachi and points forward to what people can expect in the future. Starting in verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel, statutes and judgments. Behold, I am sending Elijah, the prophet, before the coming great and fearful day of Yahweh, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a ban. The first verse points Israel back to Moses. Horeb is actually another name for Sinai, and so the events of the giving of the law are being referenced. The Hebrew expression translated uh, the law of Moses, Torah Moshe, uh, only occurs here, but can be taken to refer more widely to what Moses wrote. So maybe Malachi challenges them to think about the stories. And of course, he references the stories throughout, like um, the election of Jacob in 1-2, or the designation of the Levitical priesthood in chapter 2. However, though the events of the Pentateuch are referenced in Malachi, here at least, Malachi's concern is for the actual laws, the statutes and judgments which were given, what we could think of as the law proper. And as so often in biblical literature, to remember is to do more than recall the facts, but to grant them their rightful significance. It's interesting that Horeb in particular is mentioned. Clendenin observes that this is where the people requested that they would no longer hear the voice of God in Deuteronomy 18. As a solution, Deuteronomy 18.15 says that there will be another prophet like Moses who will arise and to whom the people must listen. Now, 1st to 2nd Kings makes several parallels between Moses and Elijah. So it goes out of its way to portray Elijah like a second Moses or a prophet like Moses. One of the key similarities is that Elijah goes to Horeb, the same mountain where Moses received the law, to hear from God. And there, like Moses, he fasts for 40 days and famously doesn't hear God in the earthquake or fire, but in the silence. And it's there that the Lord assigns Elisha to Elijah to be his successor. So already, far before the time of Malachi, we have this tradition of the people needing a Moses 
so much so that a prophet like him will come on the scene later on. And even that character, Elijah, powerfully illustrates how this mantle gets passed on. We have a good reason then, as we remember Moses and these famous stories, to anticipate that a future messenger will come, like Moses and Elijah. All that to say, the choice of Elijah in the next verse, in in verse 5, is not so random as it might seem at first. Like Malachi is saying, in the future, God will send back, and then he spins the Rolodex of famous Bible characters and just so happens to land on Malachi. Matthew, Mark, and Luke identify John the Baptist as this coming Elijah. Luke 1.17 particularly picks up Malachi 4.6 when it records the, the angel's prophecy to Zechariah, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Yet there are good reasons to think that John has not exhausted the Elijah prophecy. Luke and Acts make several parallels between Jesus and Elijah, particularly in things like resurrecting widows' sons and ascending up into heaven and uh, leaving their followers as their successors. And Acts applies the prophet like Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 to Jesus in a number of places too. John, uh, the evangelist, intriguingly records John the Baptist denying that he's Elijah. And the idea might be that he isn't the complete or exhaustive fulfillment or that he isn't the Elijah as the people were expecting. In other words, the people were rightly expecting Elijah to be a miraculous deliverer who would bring in judgment. And though John knows he's like Elijah in some ways, hence his purposeful imitation of Elijah's attire, he also knows that he's not the Elijah the people were expecting. And so, with their terminology in mind, knows it would be wrong to claim he will fulfill that hope. Furthermore, it is John who writes about the two witnesses in Revelation 11 who call down fire from heaven and mimic many other of Elijah's features. So, John does have room for an Elijah-like returning figure still to come. Many modern Jewish people still hope for Elijah to come. And uh, so there's this practice of leaving a place setting for Elijah and so on. Now, whoever ends up being Elijah, what does he do? What does it mean that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the heart of the sons to the fathers? Several suggestions have been offered. The best ones, of course, will draw from the book of Malachi. Some have noted that throughout Malachi, God is depicted as father, like in 1.6 or in all likelihood 2.10. We have read in 3.7, turn, same Hebrew word here, turn to me and I will turn to you. So mutual turning is a theme we've already encountered. The difficulty here is that in the Hebrew anyway, we have fathers, plural, which is represented in English translations. The Septuagint, the Greek translation, does read father in the singular, uh, but most see the Hebrew text as we have it as the more likely original. Others have suggested that children turning to fathers and vice versa picks up on Malachi's theme of the ancestors as fathers. Ancestors like Levi uh, do occur positively in Malachi. We might also think of Jacob in chapter 1. They, of course, also occur negatively, uh, like in 3.7 again. Malachi certainly does have this motif of a covenant that God made with the fathers, which impacts the descendants, and Israel, at that time, had departed from their original relationship. This comes nearer to the mark, but it still has difficulties. 
It makes sense of how the children, that is the descendants, can turn to the fathers, that is the good ancestors, by being restored in their covenant relationship. But it does struggle to explain how the ancestors, who are long dead, can be restored to the descendants. The best solution I've heard comes from Gibson in his monograph on intertextuality in Malachi. Uh, He argues that this description uh, is of future fathers and future children. That is generational reconciliation at the time when Elijah comes. He points to several times in Malachi in which the actions of fathers impact their children, such as when the priest's offspring will be cut off because of their actions. On the positive side, 2.15 has said that the purpose of marriage should be godly offspring. The idea then is that Malachi warns that the consequences of covenant infidelity or fidelity go beyond the individual and affect the family unit. When Elijah comes, he will bring about a needed repentance and reform to this generational conflict. I'm also intrigued by Clendenin's observation that Ezekiel has this gruesome description of exile conditions in which fathers shall eat their sons in your midst and sons shall eat their fathers in 510. If this is in Malachi's mind, the idea is that there will be this incredible reversal in the coming day and uh, in reconciliation in which the conditions of the exile will be undone. In any case, what is the purpose of this reconciliation? Again, we're told he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the heart of the sons to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a ban. We do well here to keep track of elements of contingency. On the one hand, some things are contingent, that is, they depend on something else. The land being struck with a ban depends on whether or not there is repentance. But notice the logic of the verse. This repentance is contingent upon Elijah's coming, which is why he comes. And since that first domino does fall over, so do the others. In other words, Elijah will come. And because he comes, he he will turn people's hearts. And the reason he will turn people's hearts is because if he didn't, there would be a ban. Thus, there won't be a ban because there will be this turning. Well, now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. Does this all mean that that vivid and graphic predictions of coming destruction, like in 4.1, about the day burning like an oven that burns up root and branch, that that's not going to happen after all? Well, that can hardly be the case. Malachi can hardly have gone through all that work to simply call it off here at the very end. Notice that the text doesn't say that all of the fathers will be turned to all of the sons. There will be repentance, but we've just gone through a lot of material up to this point to establish the fact that God is keeping track of the righteous and the wicked in such a way that the righteous will experience the sun with healing in its wings and the wicked will be burnt up. However, the existence of punishment can be there without there necessarily being a ban on the land. Let's look at this word ban here. Maybe it strikes you as strange. Uh, The word ban, harem, which uh, some translate as complete destruction, is the word used to describe the devotion to annihilation that is used in texts like Joshua 7.12 of the surrounding nations during the conquest, which were to be entirely and completely wiped out. Recall that God postponed the exodus for so long because the sins of the nations were not yet full. He waited until they had reached this tipping point, which was so bad that it meant complete destruction. Sodom and Gomorrah is a good example here, too. Abraham prayed that the cities would be spared if there were enough righteous. 
and famously bargains with God. But as the angels found out with the Lot incident, there weren't enough righteous people to save the land from complete destruction. We have another good example of this at the very beginning of Malachi itself, with Edom. With them, things had become so bad that they had passed a tipping point. And so we read in Malachi 1, 3-4 that God hates Edom and has laid waste their country. And even if they decide to rebuild, God will tear their work down and they will always be known as the wicked country, uh, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever, and so on. The point of Malachi 4, 5-6 and the work of the coming Elijah then is to ensure that Israel will not pass this tipping point. It isn't to say that the wicked won't be judged. But Elijah's work is to produce a repentant remnant whose presence among the people means that there won't be a ban on the land of Israel. This has been partially fulfilled by John the Baptist and others who have taken up that mantle. And so Paul can say in Romans 11, 1-5, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says of, here it is, Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Malachi thus concludes, on an entirely fitting note, emphasizing so many of its central themes. God has made a covenant with Israel and so will remain committed to her, but he's done so in such a way that still the wicked will be punished and people won't get away with sin. And yet this covenant operates under the principle of obedience. So there must be repentance. And that's the role of Malachi. Remember, literally, my messenger to call the people to covenant faithfulness. Praise God for the prophet Malachi and the countless others who have followed in his train, who are God's messengers, God's Malachis, who stand up in the midst of difficulties and confusion, who see past the lies of unfaithful religious leaders, who call us back to God and his word, whose message is, return to me and I will return to you. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.